Welcome to the aggressive life. I don't know if you know this or not, but I am a man. Yes, I am. I, I identify as a man and I am a, a man. I've written man books and I like guys. I like hanging out with guys. This isn't a uh, tra- traditional man podcast. It's not. But since I am a man, I'm interested in men. I like having man things on every once in a while. And today we got one of those such topics. If you're if you're a lady-like person, hey man, or woman rather, <laughs> there's something here for you, especially if you've got any men in your life or you've got a son in your life. Have you ever had a kid? Ever thought about what you're going to do when you had a kid? What if you ever had a kid who was a boy? Have you ever considered that boys may have a different operating system than girls? Have you ever considered that we haven't prepared young men to actually be men, and that's why we have 45-year-old boys, and we have every once in a while a 15-year-old man? Well, my guest today, John Tyson, one of the best well-read people that I know, one of those folks who when he talks... I listen because he is uh, he is he is a very smart cookie because he spends a lot of time developing his mind and and his spirit and he decided to do a deep dive on what to do with his teenage son. He wasn't willing to risk the development of his teenage son. He's an author. He's a pastor. He's a father, and he knew he needed to bring his boys into manhood. And what came out of it was the primal path along with his accompanying book, The Intentional Father, A Practical Guide to Raising Sons of Courage and Character. John's helping dads do a lot of great things, and he's been helping a lot of people do a lot of amazing things. We want to get into just John's take on the world today, John's take on fatherhood, on boys. Welcome to the aggressive life, all the way from New York City, a man who's part of the chicken empire, John Tyson. What's up, mate? I wish I was a part of the chicken empire. My life would be very different. I I actually once uh, spoke at an event and someone came to pick me up and they said, uh, oh, I was surprised that you flew on a regular plane rather than private jet. And I was like, no, I'm just a regular pastor. And he said, what? You're a pastor? I thought you owned Tyson Chicken. I was like, you have Googled the wrong person. He thought he was picking up the other John Tyson. Sadly, I am just a pastor and an author. Well, you've had a pretty interesting past. Uh, Just give us a brief synopsis of how you got on this side of the pond. Um, Grew up in Australia, born in Melbourne, lived in Perth from ages 2 to 10, and then Adelaide from 10 to 20. Dropped out of high school at 16, started working in a meat factory when I was 14, did an apprenticeship till I was 20, came to the US to study theology on a scholarship, heard about church planting uh, early on, and then 17 years ago, moved to New York City to, to start a bunch of churches. So that's that's sort of a synopsis. The way I stayed here, I came to study theology. I stayed because I met a beautiful American woman who won my heart. Uh, 20 years happily married, two years total hellscape, two years working through it. So that's not that's a pretty good percentage. Yeah, it is. Well, I thought you lived in Nashville because I do. Well, yes, I, I, I did some time in Nashville. So I've been in the US 25 years. And I've spent 17 of them in New York City. So um, I spent three and a half years in Nashville. So I started in Georgia, then I went to Florida, then I went to Dallas, then I went to Nashville, then I went to Orlando, but then most of my time has been spent in New York. So bouncing around, doing ministry, studying, but New York definitely feels like home. See, normally I want to get right into content here, but you know, with you, you're just sharing all this stuff that's really not central to our conversation, but you've got that sexy accent. Like all of us, your preachers are like, if I could just have that accent, my church would grow by 20% easily. Let me tell you, it doesn't look like you need an accent to get your church to grow by 20%. So (laughs) you're doing just fine. Oh, you're too kind, but not true. Not true. Anyway, let's, let's get back. I say not true because, you know, COVID has done a good number on me as well as a lot of folks and everything from it. I'm you know, we, we, we've done enough podcasts on that. Not, no more depressing COVID talk today. We're not talking depressing COVID talk. We're talking about manhood. Give us a background, John. Initiation into manhood. What does that mean? What have you learned? Just, just give us a stump speech here. Well, I basically um, realized, so part of it is, is personal. 
Um, I didn't have any formal initiation process from my father, from a community of men, but I did get initiated into manhood in a meat factory, working with a bunch of like just hardworking, beer drinking, tattooed, motorbike riding butchers. And um, I started there when I was 14 and they have a system of working you through the ranks. I did an apprenticeship too, which means, uh, you know, I started off knowing nothing. And by the time I was done, I was a master butcher. So I learned that logical sequential process of growth, skill acquisition, uh, determination, formation, and then recognition from the community of men. So it did have some development from a group of men that was very interesting to me. Um, but for the most part, I, I, I'm a, one of a handful of like formal apprentices that I've met in my lifetime. The majority of people don't have any pathway of initiation. All human societies, James Hollis, who's the head of the American Jungian Association, so studied psychology, particularly midlife stuff, said all societies have had a six-step process for forming men. And we are the first society in history that does not have this process. Let me spell it out real mm. quick. Number one, uh, removal from the environment of childhood. Number two, death of the psychology of thinking like a child. Number three, a process of formation where young men learn three things. They learn the story of their people, the religion of their community, and the roles expected to hold honor in that society. Then after years of learning those particular things, they're sent out for what's called the ordeal. The ordeal is a period of testing to prove that these external things have become internalized. In essence, you carry them and they're yours. Then there's a ceremony where you're recognized by the community of men and then you're reintegrated back in a society as a man, different psychology, different physically, with the ability to contribute to the common good of society. Almost universally, it doesn't matter if it's Aboriginals in Australia um, or First Nation peoples in Greenland. They've had a very, very similar process. And we've basically thrown that out the window, replaced it with video games, porn, maybe a high school graduation. And we wonder why our world is in chaos and men are languishing. Dude, you're speaking my love language. Yes. Completely right. Yeah. <laughs> it seems to me too that we, we are talking so much about gun control, which we should, we should at least be having that conversation with all the shootings. And and somewhere, somewhere in the midst, all we're talking about is what we should do with an inanimate object like a gun. And I'm not hearing anyone say, oh, and by the way, all these people are young men. All yeah, of I them. Yeah, totally agree. They're all young men. Is the problem here with an inanimate object or is the problem with how we're dealing with with young men, we're failing miserably at this. It, it's hard. We have lived in a, through seasons of history where women have not flourished at the expense of men, but it does seem we're living in a, hist a time of history right now where women, in regarding most metrics, tend to be moving up and to the right and men are stuck. So this is bearing itself out in universities. This is bearing itself out in the workplace, but you're, you're hitting on a key point. Young men are struggling. They're lost, they see no pathway forward. And again, most of the violence done in the world today is done by young men who have no vision of the future. Yeah, we can say all we want that men have certain privileges. I believe that they do. I believe that we do. I think it's still easier to be a man in today's country than to be a woman. But we've also got to look at the the carnage that's ensuing from these young dudes who are boys who have not been fathered, who just aren't prepared at all. It's 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 scary and it's awful. When you're a young person, I mean, you, you were dealing, A, your body is changing, particularly young men. You've got testosterone coming on your body. You're growing. Your frame is... Uh, developing, you get muscles, aggression is coming in, challenge, competition, comparison, all of these, you know, the desire to prove yourself, all of these things are happening in your body. And society has realized that if that energy is not channeled in young men, it will be destructive. And so what we've done is we've acknowledged the raw potency of male strength, but we don't have the mechanisms to channel it anymore. We have no restraint right. mechanisms. I remember um, Os Guinness saying once, uh, the only restraint appropriate for a free people is self-restraint. And that was the beauty of America. Americans historically had a sense of virtue woven into the society. So even a sense of nobility about what it was to be a man, we've thrown that off in a radical pursuit of freedom, autonomy, hedonism. And as a result, you get all the strength of men with none of the result.
uh, none of the restraint and it's just, yeah, use the word carnage. I think that's a, an adequate term. Unpack that more, John. You said we've thrown that off in pursuit of you rattle off some things. I, you, you, you're, you're one of the best cultural anthropologists of our times who's able to understand and diagnose and explain what's happening in culture. So just assume you're preaching to the first grade class here, which would be me. Talk about what our culture is doing or not doing for our young people. In essence, the vast majority of societies had a series of external values, and your job was to restrain the chaos within and conform to those agreed-upon values. So if you go back to Greco-Roman society, the four predominant values were justice, wisdom, courage, and self-restraint. That's that's my translation of them. So a young man then, in order to move through the world, knew he had to care about justice. He had to become a man of wisdom. He had to cultivate courage and he had to restrain himself. So regardless of what he was feeling, regardless of what he was dealing with, he ordered his inner life around these external virtues for the good of the world and personal honor. We are one of very few societies in history that has said, any external value is oppressive. The goal of mm. life then is to turn whatever your feelings are and whatever's happening inside of you into a cultural value through personal and self-expression. And so as a result, there's no restraint. There's only expression. That expression is detached from any moral framework that anybody can agree upon other than personal rights. And so what we're living in right now is moral and ethical chaos where people do whatever they want. And it's just a different way of ordering the world. It's a huge experiment. And I think the data is really beginning to show right now from social psychology that it's failing us. Depression rates, anxiety, self-harm, lack of hope about the future are at unprecedented and epidemic levels with this next generation. Young men feeling it acutely. And so I care about this space because I care about young men and I care about the kind of world we live in. And I realize to a large degree, men will shape the future of the world. And so we've got to have better men if we want a better future. I was at a pastor event recently and, and someone mentioned a book that you recommended. And I said, oh, well, if the chicken magnet likes uh, likes this book, I better, I better get this book myself. And it's wonderful. True Blood's book that basically gives the history of philosophy and how we've come to yeah, this, yeah, this yeah. current day. Yes. And he basically says- Strange new world. He, that's the, that's the yes, shorter that's version, it. yeah. Yes, yes. Of course, you read the longer version. Well, I'm sure. no, no. I mean, it's just like it was. It, it was. It was a tough read, and I was yeah. actually. I actually thought about doing a course, just doing it myself for the internet, because I felt his book was so important. And then I was really glad when he came out with like an abridged version of it. But he does. He does yeah. that. He gives the whole history of the modern self. Yeah. Right, the whole history going back to Oscar Wilde and Freud and comes today where it's where it's, it's all about expressing my true self is finding the emotional person that I think internally, which oftentimes is connected with sex, and I can't be happy without that. And therefore, this is really being a person of integrity is expressing myself. And it's it's this personal they don't they haven't they haven't talked about this in the book, at least not that I've heard so far. This this whole communal worldview, which is every ancient culture, which was America, what made America great, this communal worldview that I'm in something, I'm attached to things, I'm attached to people, it isn't about me. I mean, that's gone. That's just long, oh, long it's, gone. It's and gone. We're just Yeah, one of his most powerful concepts from this book, he talks about it right at the end, is called the imagined, communi imagined community. And it, it, it's not what it sounds like. He basically tries to make the point, a trucker, a white middle-aged trucker in Seattle and an African-American 16-year-old boy in Montgomery, Alabama, when they say, I am an American, they have to imagine something that unites them, even if their experience is radically different through class, race, uh, location, that sort of a thing. So the 16-year-old African-American can close his eyes and say, I'm an American. It may have a certain history. Uh, my experience of it may have been good or bad, but in my mind, I at least know what that means. And the trucker, in the white trucker in Seattle has to close his eyes and say, I'm a white trucker, I feel this, but at least America means something. What his point is this, America doesn't mean anything anymore. There's no imagined community. There's no sense of us. And so we get our sense of communal worth 
from whichever group we I choose to identify with primarily on the internet. And uh, so it's very, very hard to build a world where someone living in your home, some 15-year-old kid, feels more affinity with an online gaming group than he does with his own father who's in the next room. It's a very, very challenging cultural moment to sort of build a community. And that's why, again, your work on man camp and like tr trying to get guys together to build a new sense of community. That's what Jesus did, gathered a group of men around him, initiated a new kingdom with a vision for a new society. And I think that's one of the important things we're called to do today. Are you very familiar with uh, the Catholic priest, Richard Rohr? Very familiar with Richard Rohr, yes. Are you familiar with his, his, like, his five points about masculinity? Maybe, maybe even you have this in his book, his five things that boys yes, need to yes. know. Adam's return. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, tell us what those five things are because it ties into this. It's fascinating. Yeah, so let me just uh, say a little disclaimer about Richard Rohr. I've soured on Rohr a little bit as of late. Um, his earlier stuff was phenomenal. And his stuff on male spirituality was very, very strong. As of late, his theology worries me a little bit. Just put that disclaimer in there. Anyway, his no, book- I, Well, I, I yeah. want him on, the, we've tried to, tried to get him on the, on the yeah. podcast. We've been working on that, Dirt, getting him on the podcast. And that's certainly one of the things I want to do is like, are you, would you call yourself a Christian right now? Yes. We're, 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 I'm just curious on that. And whatever he says would be fine with me, but he's done some brilliant work on men. Yeah, absolutely. So he's, he wrote a book called Adam's Return and he basically said that society's a sim. I talked about, you know, the six step initiation process. He said there was basically five rules. Rule number one, life is hard. Number two, you are not important. Number three, your life's not stop about right you. There, stop right there. <laughs> Can you imagine telling the average 16-year-old life is, before you even go any further, life is hard. And two, you're not important. <laughs> I, I find that incredibly freeing. You are not important. But most people find that bondage. Yeah, they'll take your kids away from you if you tell them that. Um, your life's not about you. You're not in control and you're going to die. And I remember my son, I took- I, God I used, bless America. I used to say this to my son every morning growing up. And in the third grade, he went to this private school in Manhattan and he's, he turns 22 tomorrow. So this is a long time ago. Uh, in the school newspaper, it had quote of the week and it was my son that said, Nathan Tyson, life is hard. This is the first rule of manhood. And that was his third grade quote at his private school. And I love that because I wanted him to sort of get that. What I ended up doing, because I was, I was committed to trying to translate those, those are, I don't want to say they're, um, I mean, they're, they're harsh realities, but I wanted to help young men see I'm a big contrast teacher. So most of my books are, you know, like here's one thing, here's the other thing. So you can sort of get a glimpse. I try to do that for in, in my book, Intentional Father. So I basically rewrote those five rules as a series of shifts. So life is hard. I, I put from ease to difficulty. So like boys want ease, men embrace difficulty. Self to others. Boys care about themselves, men care about others. The whole to apart. Men, uh, boys think everything's about them. Men think that they're only a part of the great story. Control to ascend, surrender. Boys think they can control reality. Men surrender to reality. And then the temporary to the eternal. Boys only think about the moment. Men think about the eternal vision. So I've, I've got a whole thing on a series of five shifts. I actually just got these back. These are our new, uh, these just came in. These are our patches that a boy can earn when he goes oh. through these uh, five shifts. He gets that on a sort of like a go-ruck backpack. And um, so, yeah, he do, we do a thing called Difficulty Day where he passes this, this unit of material and then he gets to have this patch to sort of let him know, hey, man, you've done it. You're now learning as a man to embrace difficulty instead of dropping back to ease. You're starting to learn to care about others rather than just caring about yourself. So, yeah, it's important to have that psychological shift. Men do well when they get a sense that they're making progress. And those adolescent years, very, very important to be able to say, this is where I was, this is where I've come. So yeah, I love raw stuff, particularly that book, Adam's Return. I try to sort of up, sort of change that framework to make it more applicable for young men. That's, that's fascinating, John, because I wrote a book called Five Marks for Man, yeah. independently of what you and, and Richard Rohr have talked about. Uh, the five marks that I came up with are virtually the same as that. Maybe four and a half are online. I mean, that's that's crazy that rooted, grounded men are just able to dissect the heart of God and the heart of culture and are coming to the same conclusions. It, these things just are what they are. It's exactly right. Almost like there's a divine design. You, you know what I mean? Almost like there's yep. a universal recognition that a man is something a man should become something, and if he doesn't, our world is in peril. So, yeah, I totally agree. It's, it's, it's almost universal.
it's really too bad that people get upset about man talk like it and immediately is supposed to be toxic masculinity if you're talking about this this kind of thing and i i just want people to understand when you when you have a boy you basically have been given a tyrannosaurus rex when my when my son was born my first son and i put him on the change or the nurses put him on the changing table and he sent a stream of piss shooting up in the air, hit my shoulder, came down my arm. It was like a wake-up call from God where I realized, I get it, God. Yes. If I don't get a hold of this little guy, he's going to piss all over me and everybody else just like I did with my dad. Yes. You know, And that's what it's like when you have a boy. we got to be serious about this. I, I don't like chihuahuas. Yes. I've never seen a chihuahua that was nice as a dog. I've never seen – I've never – but it doesn't matter. It's little, it's small. But when you have a boy, a little infant boy, a teenager or whatever, you're raising a potential T-Rex. You're raising a potential Rottweiler. And we're just, we're just letting these entities evolve into what they think. And they're dying. And literally people around them are dying. We need voices and energy like yours. So thanks, John. Yes, no worries. I totally agree with you. It's the possibility of what men will do in the world is breathtaking. When you go back through history, um, a lot of great accomplishments have been done by by men. The great cities of the world have been built at the cost of men's bodies. I mean, it's, it's just been many of the great inventions coming out of men's minds. And we, we are a society right now that is choosing to neglect the opportunity. And when it's when it's left to its own ways, it, it, it does it does turn toxic because that strength is so potent. I, I think about, you know, we, we talk a lot um, about the Proverbs 31 man and uh, people talk about the Proverbs 31 woman, but the Proverbs 31 man starts, it starts by saying this, do not give your strength to women. Your vigor to those who ruin kings. And uh, I've got a little thing I run called Restoring Kings and it's all about men who've misspent their vigor and their energy. And it goes on, it's one of those famous passages that says, beer is not for those in the palace, it's for those who are languishing. Why in case you get dulled? And then he goes on, and this is a passage that was used a lot um, around George Floyd. It says, speak up for the oppressed, judge fairly. Well, all of that is what a man does with his rule and his reign. And um, it's actually a mother exhorting her son, looking at the end of King Solomon's life. Solomon gave his strength at the end of his life to building futile uh, altars and temples to other gods. And so what a man chooses to do with his strength in many ways will determine the shape of the world. And so again, we got to channel that. So give us a tutorial, John. Um, I've got a, I've got a six-year-old son. What should I be thinking? What What's the path I should be on here? Well, I mean, the most important thing is to like build a, an emotional bond with your kids. I mean, I think that's the, that's the key. You've got to have that combination of respect and love sort of instilled in them. And then you've got to work hard because if that bond is not there, you're going to have a very, very hard time forming their hearts later in life. And so at that age, it's primarily a war for their heart. Do they feel loved? Do they feel secure? Do they feel known? Do they have uh, a sense that they're under your authority and that that's a gift to them? It provides protection and it provides blessing. And so just working hard on that. I mean, I'm a big believer in doing one night a week with your kids or if, if you've got too many kids, one night every other week, you've got too many kids, one night a month. But you're just basically going to war for their hearts. You want to know who they are, what makes them tick. You want to understand them. You want to build that bond. That's the big part of it before you get into the teenage years. Somewhere around 10, I did a thing with my kids called the Dangerous Kids Club where I basically um, started a gang in my house that you had to be initiated in to join. And every week we did one borderline illegal activity that required tremendous courage for their age, uh, jumping out of a moving vehicle, sneaking into abandoned properties. I just, just a list, you know, just a list That's of like cool. fun, adventurous stuff for my kids. So I was sort That's of cool. teeing up that spirit of adventure in them. And... Um, and then when my son started heading towards 13, I was like, okay, I got to turn this up. I, I'd laid the vision out, you know, from how I wanted to initiate him into this, how I wanted to end this uh, before he went off to college. And I just started like hyping him up on it. So yeah, build the bond so they want to spend time with you and that you can handle rebellion, you can handle the challenge, you can handle the busy schedule, but you can still make progress as I move forward. And then what about 
the event, the swearing in of <laughs> the swearing in ceremony. coming into manhood. Yes. Well, I mean, again, what I was trying to do, I was trying to do two things. I was trying to consciously remove my son from the childhood environment. That was a huge part. In many of these tribes, they would abduct these kids or, you know, um, right. one particular society, they just, all the men would just come and start chanting out the front of the house. Bring out, you know, bring out your boy, bring out your boy. I mean, they're getting ready to literally take this kid off and initiate him. So I wanted to do a, uh, you know, a little bit more of a sophisticated, though still with a primal element version of that. So uh, I formed a cohort with a couple of other dads and uh, my son's closest friends and picked him up in a car and I told him, like, we had a countdown, the day is coming, the day is coming, you're going to be initiated. You're going to get cold. This is probably going to hurt. You should be afraid. Are you nervous? You should be. You know, just getting a little, put a little fear in him. <laughs> and we basically great. drove him out to the, drove him out to a beach off the coast of New York, and um, we just basically had a ceremony. Sat him down, talked through this historic process. This is the way that men were formed. We talked about the consequences of not being formed, and um, laid hands on him, prayed over him made him strip down, uh, you know, run into the ocean as like a baptism, wanted him to know you are entering into liminal space. And then we just basically had a sweet party afterwards. So it was a group of dads basically drawing a line in the literal sand, giving him a vision, laid out the vision of what was going to happen over the next six years, and then uh, helped him market with a ton of joy and fun. And then that was, and then the process began. So he runs into the water, which is freezing, that's the pain then, right? Yes. And then he, got, that's awesome. That's great. Now you mentioned when he runs in, you just dropped a little phrase there. Talk about liminal space. Well, lim liminal space is that idea. It's like that in-between space. And it's like, hey, the adolescent years are very, very confusing. You're not a boy, but you're not a man. And it's like that, that, that's navigating that territory can be really, really challenging. But you want to say to him, it's okay. Embrace the disorientation. If you're confused, that's a good thing because these are confusing years. In fact, if you're not worried, I'd be worried about you because uh, historically these have been very, very tumultuous years. There's a lot of risk, a lot at stake for who you become. So that liminal space was that, that, that conscious awareness. Something's begun, but it's not finished and I'm stuck in the middle sorting it out. And so for my son, that, that was a six-year journey of liminal space. The really weird thing that I've found is that the whole phrase adolescence I think it didn't come about until like 1920 or something like that. In all of world history, in all cultures, as soon as you could shoot sperm, you were expected to be a man because you could you could procreate. As soon as you were doing that, you could procreate. So we go from adolescence, you know, being this one-year thing to two-year thing. Now adolescence is what, a 20-year thing? You know, you're expected to be from, from yeah, 13 it, to 33. Right. No, yeah, I think it's, I think the last, um, research I looked, it was like 28 or something. Like, like that was, that was <laughs> where they recognized, hey, this is when people are beginning to emerge into adult life. I'm like, at 28, 28, oh man, I bought a couple of houses, started a church in New York City. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to have some sort of like chronological superiority or whatever, but I just didn't live in a world. I lived in a world where you took on responsibility young you know, and you, you got on with building your life. The 20s won a decade of yeah. self-exploration. There's some good parts about that. There's some bad parts about that, but we are overdoing the extended adolescence for sure. America was the greatest, the greatest country in the world, if we're not the greatest country in the world right now. We at least staked our claim during World War II, and it was because of 18-year-olds. That's the problem with all those World War II movies. They're all showing John Wayne and Clint Eastwood as 30-some-year-old. All yeah. those, all those, there were kids driving tanks. Kids, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds driving tanks, winning our country's freedom. Now we expect at 18 or 19, you can't do anything. You don't know, you, you, you don't know anything. You, don't have, you haven't discovered who you are yet, please. Yeah, it's, what has happened? I mean, post-World War II, I mean, part of it, a, a part of it, a lot of it was basically economic. We needed to create new stages and buying units. I think the invention of or, or the popularization of college too, the GI Bill changed the horizon of possibility for a lot of folks. Guys went on and got college degrees rather than just going into manufacturing. You've got the emergence at scale of white collar workers. So 
And then you've got more money. Wives go into the workforce. They're, they're not coming out of the workforce, two-income families. And it's like, hey, we got to keep finding, we have to keep inventing stages. So we have marketing components and trends in order to keep up our cultural advantage post-World War II to sell products to people. So, you know, the classic, it's planned obsolescence, it's perceived obsolescence. Build stuff that wears out and create trends so people feel left behind. Segment into further smaller and smaller units, men are, you know, at that point still making a lot of money, chop them into segments, take their paychecks. I mean, it's done a lot of damage. It has. John, what I love about what you're talking about is this is the aggressive life and this is incredibly aggressive. I mean, you're just deciding to do things that there's no playbook for, or at least not one that people are are, are operating on. Having, having, your, having your kids jump out of moving cars, break into buildings, just the aggressive move to have them run into the ocean, the aggressive move to actually organize some buddies and go on a journey with your son. Um, I think that's one of the really great things about you is this is the first time I've ever had a conversation or heard you talk about manhood. But it seems like whenever you do talk, you turn heads because you make some some really, really aggressive statements. I'm going to give you some statements here that are some favorite quotes um, that we pulled. We, meaning dirt over there. Dirt pulled these. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Yes, dirt does Dirt does amazing. Um, but when he pulled these, they're like, oh, gosh, yeah, these are the right ones. So let me, let me just okay. give John Tyson an aggressive sentence, and then you just give us a mini sermon on that. Are you up for that? Okay, let's go. All right, here we go. You, you say, the life of a boy is a life of ease, a life of self in which we try to control everything and a life spent living in the moment. But the beauty of being a man is that a man embraces difficulty, cares about others, is part of a greater story, is willing to surrender to a greater cause and lives for the eternal, not the temporary. Yeah, come on, let's go. That's it. I agree wholeheartedly. I stand by what I just wrote right there. We live in a world that has such low expectations of men. I, I'm basically just trying to raise the bar here and say, hey, look, if someone walks into the room, all they care about is themselves, all they're thinking about is right now, they're self-focused, self-obsessed, complain when things get hard. I don't know anybody, male or female, that wants that person leading the room. But when someone comes in and they say, let me load it on my back, I can handle this. When they, when they do this with an orientation towards other people, when they've got a big picture, when they're not a control freak, they're, they're a part of something larger than themselves, and they can play the long game, which just means they don't give in out of weakness in the moment. That's the kind of men the world needs. And uh, so I'm consciously trying to build a pathway that forms those kinds of men. And I think, honestly, that sounds to me like, I don't know, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is someone who embraced difficulty, lived for others, lived for eternity. I mean, it just sounds like helping men become like Jesus. I think the embrace of difficulty is what resonates with me uh, so much right now. I don't know in the history of Christianity if there's ever been as many people who were deconstructing or renouncing their faith as it seems to be that we have right now. I'm not saying number of people aren't Christians. I'm saying the percentage of people 20 years ago who'd have said they're Christians and now they're saying they don't or they're deconstructing or this and that. I've got to think in the history of Christianity, whatever that percentage is, it's higher than at any other country at any other point. And I think the reason is because we've we've assumed that our faith means my life is going to be easier. That we've bought into this idea if I've if I've got Jesus and I've got an easy life, I'm gonna be in the family business where something is gonna be easier for me. And the idea of difficulty, if something is difficult, then something is wrong. No, it's called holiness. It's called sanctification. These are big words we don't normally use in the progressive life. We normally rather talk about beer than theology words, but no, no, this is this is part of the deal of what it means to be a man, uh, let alone a believer, is life is hard. You get burned at the stake. You feel like you're isolated. You get to go on a ship that you've never been on before and travel to the other side of the world and get shipwrecked and be bit by snakes. You get to be stoned. You get to be burned at the stake. You, all the early believers understood, that's what I 
get. And here we think what I'm supposed to get is the sweet sugar finger of God making my life better. And as soon as it's difficult, oh, it's so hard. People don't like me, but I'm the only one who thinks this way. Oh, I can't. We're gone because there's no substance. I'm grateful for Jesus whose starting invitation is, take up your cross daily, deny yourself and follow me. He could not be more honest. We're trying to do PR for Jesus and make him more palatable rather than letting his shocking claims echo through the hearts of men. And I tell you, I would much rather hear Jesus say, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me and enter into a life, the cruciform life, of self-denial than a life of pleasure and ease. We all know deep in our spirits that doing hard things that shape us into stronger people is one of the ways we actually feel confident and competent in the world. So yeah, Jesus, uh, stop, stop trying to make it easier on Jesus' behalf. Let Christ speak for himself. And I think we're losing people who who could be part of our church as part of the kingdom of God because we're, we're just afraid of it being hard. Um, I remember when I read the book Endurance on Ernest Shackleton. I just what pulled it up book, here on my man. phone. It's so good. Oh, it's unbelievable. It's, it's if, just you, wild. if you've got any aggressive life listeners, if you've not read the book called The Endurance, the story of Ernest Shackleton, oh my gosh, get it. But I just looked it up on my phone because I wanted to see the ad. He, this guy places an ad. He's one of the old ancient Arctic uh, explorers. I won't give you the whole story. I could tell you the whole story. You still should watch the book. It's amazing. Anyway, he places an ad for his crew that's going to be sailing across the Arctic. And here's what his ad says. And I just keep wondering, if you place this, if this went on social media today, if this was tweeted today, I mean, he, he put this ad out, and I don't know, 500 eyes saw it and he ended up getting like 12 guys. You could put this out right now and you, you could you could have 100 million men in America read this today. I don't think you get 12. Here it is. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success. Ernest Shackleton for Burlington Street. That's unbelievable, man. Well, you know what? He was true to his word too because it was everything he said in there happened and the reward uh, that he promised happened too. So yeah, you gotta, we True. gotta aim higher. Small dreams don't inflame the hearts of men. That's what one of my mentors said to me. Jesus is taking fishermen and he's upgrading them and he's asking them to have a kingdom. It's such an upgrade to join Jesus, but it's, it's a war of the spirit. It's a radical life of self-denial. It is hardship, but it's also one of profound joy. We're in a crisis of meaning right now. Meaning does not come from pleasure. Meaning comes, and this is what most of the great religious traditions understand. Meaning comes through dealing with suffering. And when you confront it and make progress and you grow and you don't get bitter and you overcome, life takes on more meaning. That's it. Jesus is is one of the originators of that. We should reclaim that message. Taking notes on you, man. Small dreams don't inflame the hearts of men. That's from someone else, man. That's my mentor shooting it down to me. He probably got it from someone else, but I've carried it. Well, well, he certainly got that at least from how Jesus gave vision life to his followers because that inflamed them. Crazy. All right, let me give you another one. Here we go. John Tyson says, may it never be said that your son thinks there is more wisdom about life from Google and YouTube than from you. Yeah, well, that may be hard because there's a lot of decent content on YouTube, uh, particularly some of these dad channels that have sprung up. Here's what I'm trying to say. I'm sort of like a man should have a code and a source of wisdom and his son should look to him and think, my dad knows how to handle some stuff. So let me talk to my dad. Well, I mean, one of the great moments of my, so my, my fathering my son, it, was, it seemed like a very small moment, but it was just, it was massive for me. My son's dealing with a bully at school. My son goes to school in Queens. We live in Manhattan. He goes to school out in Queens. Takes the train out there. It's, it's in a bit of a challenging neighborhood. He's just got this bully. So he's just like, I could see something's messing with him. I can just see he's coming home from school, something's messing with him. Then he sits me down and he just explains it all. And he just says to me, Dad, how do I handle this? I'm not afraid to resort to violence, but I know that you have wisdom about navigating conflict. How do I do it? 
And I was like, that's it. My son recognises my dad knows how to handle conflict as a leader and he's got some people skills. And yeah, I guess I could Google dealing with a bully, but here's my dad right here who knows how to deal with stuff like this and he turns to me. Do you know how much joy that brought me for my own son to look at me and recognise in his life, I've got to talk to my dad about that. Man, talk about filling the heart with joy. So I'm trying to just build that relationship where fathers have, they, they codify the lessons that they have. Most men have far more wisdom than they're aware of. They just don't spend time thinking about it and jotting it down into transferable information. So yeah, I'm trying to help dads level up do an audit of what they're actually carrying and then put it in a way they can pass it on to their sons and their daughters. So what did you say to your son? You can't just leave us hanging on an amazingly adrenaline-pumping story. You said what to your son about the bully? I said, well, number one, mate, you try, you try and there's, there's probably four or five ways you handle it and they're all circumstantial depending on the situation you're in. Like, is this like, A, what's the, why is the bully doing this? You've got to understand his motivation. B, is there a way to do it where you can de-escalate without him feeling like he's going to lose honour. He's stacked the room now. If he's doing this in front of people, there's an audience involved with this. So he's got to have a way out that involves some measure of honour. So how do you de-escalate? If none of that crap works, you're just going to have to get into it. And normally in a fight, the person who throws the first punch wins. That's it. Try and work it out. If you can't work it out, get into it. I mean, that, uh, that may shock people, but I mean, those teenage years are tough. That's a tough situation. You know, I wish, I'm a pacifist sympathizer. Like I, I love the, I love the vision of nonviolent resistance. I love it. I love, you know, that the strength of restraint to take a beating and give it back. We should always do that as far as we can. Here's another one from you. For fathers, this holds true. If we don't transform the pain we experience as sons, we'll pass that pain onto our own sons. I think this is a great point here because it's hard to just hear this if you're a dad and say, okay, I'm going to go out and I'm going to make an initiation ceremony. I'm going to go treat these five points and communicate them. We've got to deal with our own father wound, don't we? Our own our own issues and pains. Yeah, 100%. It's Raw's quote, and it's, it's sort of uh, trumpeted by Rollheiser, whatever pain is not transformed is transferred. So it's like, hey, if, if it doesn't change from you, man, it's going to come through you. And it normally happens under stress. You've got noble intentions as a dad. I'm going to fill in the blank, all these wonderful things. But when the crap hits the fan, who you are comes out under stress. And if I know anything about raising kids, it's this, it's stressful. So you will not impart your best aspirations. You will impart your true self. And that's why you got to like, my, the first few chapters of my book, they're all about preparation dealing with your own wounds, making sense of it. A huge part, and again, this is, what, this is what Jung addressed, a huge part of only having your father as a reference point, like a solo reference point, is because even if you say, I'll never be like him, you're still making a mistake. You're reacting, your reference point for good or for bad is still from your father. You need to transcend your father's influence and have a larger reference point. And then you, number two, need to understand who's the kid God's given me and what do they need? And your kid may not need things from you or your dad. They may need a completely different source of wisdom. And so you're going to have to try and, you know, like uh, my daughter um, is a two on the Enneagram. I mean, she's the most servant-hearted, patient, delightful wonderful young woman. She's 19, sophomore in college, studying nursing because she wants to be a caregiver, you know? So my interactions with my daughter, I've got to ask, what does she need to be nurtured in my heart? If I'm only like, well, here's what my dad did or here's what my mum did, I'm still not asking what does she need? So that's the great, you know, when I, the book's called The Intentional Father. I'm basically trying to get people to ask, how do you be intentional figuring out what your kid needs? And don't just have your wounds or your desire not to wound as the whole curriculum of forming your kids. Get beyond that. Get healing, damn. If there's blessings, bring them down. If there's brokenness, damn it up so it doesn't get through. But that's a lot of self-reflection, man. I mean, 
can be, it's very, very hard for men to sit down and sit with their own stories and then get below the, the reactive points, the trigger points and really ask, hey, when did that emerge in yeah. your life? In what ways is that consciously and subconsciously uh, appeared? You know, Jung has another quote. He says, if we don't understand our subconscious desires, we'll go through our lives, we'll be driven by them, and, but we'll just call it fate. We just think we just we're driven by neurosis, but we just call it fate. No, it's actually you not dealing with your issues, driving your life. If you're in a situation where things keep happening to you, let me give you some feedback. It's you. It's you. <laughs> so yeah, we have to we have to do that work. And and again, I don't want to just I want to be honest. Like it can be very very hard. That pain can go deep. Most male anger is not male anger. It's male sadness. We're sad. We feel misunderstood. Um, we've got stuff that hasn't happened. We've either been wounded consciously or wounded by withholding, which means there's stuff that should have happened and didn't and there's a deficit in our life that's like a dull ache. And we keep trying to draw on a well. There's nothing in it and there should be. Yep. So, so there's a lot going on there. So yeah, pay attention. Pay attention to that. Let Jesus meet you and speak with you and shape you. How much of Jesus' work is him just like, a bunch of dumb disciples trying to figure out how to live in the kingdom of God and him shaking his head and saying, try again. You know, he's forming them over time. Yeah, you're you're going to be in the 1% if you're digging into your issues and stuff. And uh, unfortunately, I don't know how the average guy can possibly do that. The average guy is incredibly lonely. Loneliness has been the worst epidemic that's hit us long, hit long before COVID. Dudes are incredibly lonely. They don't have anybody to confide to. And when they do confide in somebody, there's very few people who even know how to empathize and respond in, in an appropriate way and know how to be supportive. It's, it's very few. And I found out when I've gone through some really, really tough stuff, like sometimes some, some of my great friends just, just didn't know what to say, what to do. They, it, was, it was tough. So the average guy, unless he's going to be... <laughs> Unless he's in uh, a counseling relationship with somebody or he happens to hit the lotto and he's has a very tight group of people who are, who's going to find in the church. You're not going to find these folks outside of a church. You know what I mean? I mean, it, it, churches are healing communities. We have, an, we have an understanding of woundedness that the rest of the world just doesn't. So there's just not many guys who are who are going to be able to do this. What do you say to this? I'm depressing myself as I, as I talk uh, here. Agree, disagree. You, no, I totally agree. I mean, most of the great men's movements in history were birthed out of the faith tradition. A, because our Savior's a man and he says, follow me. So, you know, we've got, we've got a template um, of what authentic manhood is and how we should pursue it. It is very, very hard. So I see a lot of men rallying around hobbies, you know, I know you're a motorbike guy. Uh, I've got a Harley and a Triumph. Motorbikes are the, uh, the, the passion of my life. I, I mean, I, after this, we'll go and ride my bike. And um, so I'm, I'm in a, a group I just joined called New York City Motorcycle Riders, and just a bunch of like interesting dudes. And it'd be really tough when you pull up after a ride. So hey, how's it going, man? It's like, oh, what? yeah, it's, you know, I've got a huge meaning void in my life. It's like a, it's like a black <laughs> hole of despair. And I'm really thinking about driving my bike into the cliff. Like you, where do you, no one's, they're going to be like, dude's out of our club. There's no places, you know, when you're on a local right. sports team. How's it going? Wow, I'm thinking about killing myself. You, start, you can't get into it. <laughs> right. But churches right. are places designed for men to be open and vulnerable like that. And I, sometimes it's just you initiating it. You know, like yeah. modeling true vulnerability, like guys, can I be honest with you? I'm not doing all right. I'm really struggling right now. And I need prayer and friendship. Will someone be honest with me? We just did a men's event that was actually really, really beautiful. You gotta think, it's Friday night in Manhattan, 57th Street, it's late. It's about a hundred guys packed in a church. And we basically did this vulnerability exercise, went around the room, what's the greatest need in your life right now? Risk and be honest. And then everyone went around in these circles and they said, okay, we're gonna, let's solve these needs tonight. Who in this room can do something about this need that people have right now? And I had a young guy say to me, I'm really struggling in my marriage and I just want someone to talk to about it. And so I said, bro, let's go get coffee. Let's go walk around. Let's just talk about it. And um, I was like, man, what a rare room where you got a hundred men saying, how can I help you with what you need in your life? I was like, there's very few places outside of AA 
and the recovery communities where men can find help like that. And we got to normalize it. Like I'm in a great right. mission, as I sense that you are as well. I'm in a mission to form a better kind of man for the renewal of the world. Right. I was <clears throat> working out the other day and I was, um, I needed the, I needed the bench and there was like, I don't know, this gym where I was going to, there was, I don't know, probably eight benches or so. All of them were used except for one. And that one had a water bottle and keys on it. Like it was, someone was saving it, which is Can't so, save the bench. Can't save the bench. No, 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 you can't do that. No. So I just, I looked around, seeing if the person's there. I was going to do the nice thing. Like, hey, you mind if I, you Let's know. work in. Yeah. Yeah, right. And I, I couldn't find the person. I just looked around. So after about 15 seconds, I just, I took, I took the bottle and the keys. I just set them two feet to the side on the floor and I went and did my thing and, you know, I'm doing, doing my exercise. I get done. This, this, this guy comes up, fairly burly guy. He's more muscular than me. And he is pissed. He's like, Hey, he's, 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 he's just not happy that I'm on his bench. He could have gone the bench right beside me because that had opened up since, but he's just not happy. And I said, Hey man, you, you, this is, you, you can't save equipment here. That's, that's just basic gym protocol. And he just started powering up on me, and um, I'm like, "Okay, man, fine. You you you, you can have you can have the final. I'll, I'll take this one beside. Fine. So so I, I did. So I'm I'm doing the thing, and and he's he's stronger than me. He's bigger than me, and it's not it's not lost on me that we're doing similar exercise, but he's doing it with dumbbells that are more like heavier than mine, right? And it's not lost on me that he's wanting me to see that he's lifting more than me, like to intimidate me. He's not intimidating me. So I'm doing a thing, and I sense the spirit of God in the midst of this exercise. I just go, just, just stop and go, go get the guy's name. So I, I put it down. I, you know, I walked the three feet over, six feet over. I stuck up my hand, and said, "Hey, my, my, my name is Brian." Um, and Trisha, he, he did a very limp shake, like didn't want to shake my hand. And I, I tried to bring the conversation up again. And he just, he just. Like exploded, like, can't, can't be touching my stuff. Can't be touching my. Stuff. Okay, okay, fine. And I, I walked away from that thinking, okay, that guy is just an average guy. That guy doesn't know how to comprehend disappointment. He doesn't know how to talk in conflict situations. He probably reacted that way because he's. I don't know. If, imagine your mind maxed up to his credit cards. His girlfriend broke up with him. He his his dad died. He he has nobody in his life who cares about him. He's got a father. I mean, just go on and on and on and on. I just I was like really sad. Like, what's the answer for that kind of guy? And that guy is the normal. Maybe he's a little more bruised looking than the average guy, but that guy's the normal. That's why books like yours and people like you are important to us. I always think, what's the typical person carrying around? You know, I mean, the, that that statement, I think it's the row most men lead lives of quiet desperation is true. There's a lot of pain, a lot of disappointment about how life is working out underneath. And uh, particularly in the middle years, man, the middle years are tough years where you're like, I've got another 40 years of duty with little joy, all the big things I've already done them. And it's just a giant, a giant long list of obligation. And then you're like sort of disappointed with yourself, disappointed with your life. You're stuck with responsibility. You can't take massive action to sort of shake it up unless you're doing the aggressive life. And then people are just walking around sad. We got to be people of hope. You know, we two great things for vision, hope and hate. You can change, you can be different and you're going to hate mediocrity and Satan is trying to hold you back from your redemptive potential. I, I was at a concert um, seeing uh, my favourite artist, uh, Bon Iver. Amazing, amazing artist. And I'm in the, the, the opening act is happening and it's like this girl with a background track doing a nasal drone singing about nothing. So I'm there with a friend of mine, we're just talking. And this young guy, probably 23, a lot smaller than me, there with his girlfriend, turns around and says to me, do you plan on talking the entire way through the concert in a really aggressive tone? And I, I remember just thinking to myself, I was like, this guy has no, no, same thing. He has no ability to navigate this situation. He could have said, hey man, um, I actually came for this artist. My girlfriend really loves it. Would, could you just turn the volume down? And what would I have said? Hey, no problem, man. I said, yeah, hey, sorry, man. I didn't realize 
you know, don't want to don't want to wreck the show or whatever. But instead, the level of like powering up it produced in me, yo man, this isn't even the main show, you know. And I just was like, the typical man doesn't possess the skills to interact with other men in a world as to bring about desirable outcomes. It's right. a crisis point. One of the things I do every week, a thing called man school. That's a part of it. You got to learn how to just handle life. Very, very man challenging school. Task. Just man school What's this one thing you night do? a week. What a, man school. One night a, and it's open to anybody to come? No, it's for what, my what, son. What, it's a part of the Primal Path program, man school. Oh, it's your son. Okay. Yeah, one night I'm a going, week. I'm, not a, I'm a loser. I'm not leading man school. I should be having a man school man here. Camp. You're doing man camp. You're doing man camp. Once or twice a year, whatever. You're like, it's I'm going, oh my gosh. So John Tyson is now doing something every week with man. I'm a no, loser. I'm not doing that. Stop it. <laughs> no, what about what about uh, speak to the lady folk the mothers out there who've got sons uh they're they're single they're single maybe or they've got a husband who's checked out for whatever reason what what does a mom do with this information well first thing i would say is like mom you are literally great you are a great woman. The, the biblical definition of greatness is not accomplishment. It's sacrifice for others. So a, a great mother is not the one who's, you know, at work winning all the business awards. The great mother is the one who's sacrificing for her kids. And so I just want to start by honoring him and saying, hey, I know how exhausting that can be. It can feel very overwhelming. And I just want you to know I see you and I recognize the sacrifice. Thank you. Many great men I know were raised by single moms who just like outworked absent dads out of love. So mm. I think there's that we number one, we need to acknowledge that. Number two, we need to <clears throat> we need to come around them and sort of jump in and offer to help. Jesus said that if in this life you were willing to follow him, you will get a hundred times the family, the property, the needs. Jesus is talking about becoming a member of the kingdom of God. And so A, men in the community should reach out. And, and be proactive and initiate. Hey man, we got, a, we got a thing here. Would your kids like to come along? Hey, do you, need, do you need help getting some stuff done around the house? Use your gifts and skills to be able to serve this uh, mom and be present in that role. You're not trying to replace the role of the dad or whatever. You're just trying to help out. Just trying to be that, that council of dads, that, that group, that tribe that exists for the sake of others. So I'd say, you know, men in the community should be proactive. Uh, mothers should not feel shame and they should boldly reach out and say, gentlemen, uh, you're up. I'm gonna need some help on this. And uh, there's actually quite a few books. I read a fascinating one about a, a, a mom who, that's exactly what happened. She basically built a council of dads and she just went and approached five or six guys and just said, hey, I need you to play these roles. You're good at these things. I need you to play these roles in my son's life because his dad's not around and, and I know he needs male formation. So I would say just reach out, plug your kids into the church, uh, reach out to some of the men, but mainly men try and initiate. And I would say mums, you know, do what you can. Look at Susanna Wesley. Susanna Wesley um, raised sons that changed generation and she married a drop a drop beat dad in prison, financially impoverished, you know. She had 19 kids. I think nine of them died, 10 of them lived. She gave time to each one of them. She raised John and Charles Wesley, the songs of a nation and the sermons of a nation. And uh, it's just like, just resolve in your heart that God's given you these kids for a reason and good can come from them. Do what you can and reach out for help when you need it. John, is there anything you want to talk about that I haven't asked you or hasn't come up yet? I no, kind of mate. feel bad. Like the guy with the with with the lower IQ is asking all the questions here. The guy with the higher IQ should probably Bro, know listen, what questions listen, I should be asking. Dude, I'm a high school dropout, mate. I'm not a. I, I read to compensate my lack of formal education. Wait, are you serious? You're a high school dropout? Yes, I dropped out of high school. I'm a butcher, man. I'm from a meat factory well, in Australia. Hold on, hold on. Are you you literally dropped out of high school? You just said you had a a, a scholarship to a seminary. I know they let me in. It was a miracle. It's a part of God's grace in my life. When I was 16, <laughs> I dropped out of oh high gosh. school to work in a meat factory. I bought my first house when I was 19, lived on my own. I, I just, I just, I just was a, a worker. That's awesome. Just a butcher, man. You laid my shoulders That's jacked up awesome. with arthritis. No wonder because- I've always liked you. <laughs> That's amazing. I think I had planted. 10 or help plant 10 churches in New York City before I graduated with an MA. I have no undergrad. I dropped out of college too. I have no undergraduate degree. (laughs) 
And then at some point they said, bro, you got to get a seminary degree. So they let me into seminary with no high school diploma, no bachelor's degree. I got an MA in nothing. I got an MA in church planting and I'd done 10 churches <laughs> before I graduated. Here's why I'm laughing. If uh, if you're like a normal person, you don't get paid by a church accountant and you're not in, in, inside of this sort of just Christian world where that's your living. Uh, the re- reason I'm laughing is John is um, – uh, he's absolutely one of the brightest thinkers. When John speaks on something, heads turn. He's just incredibly well-read, incredibly, incredibly intelligent, coherent. So I'm laughing like, this is awesome. This is this this breaks the mold of everything that we think. You have to have formal education to be as bright as you are. I'm I'm sure the people listening who've read your books, who've heard you preach, are laughing as well. Just utterly shocked that. Uh, that you have as humble of a beginning academically as That's God's as I great do. sense that's, of that's humor, awesome. mate. God's great sense of humor, you know? Here's <laughs> what I've learned. It's a very simple lesson. If you read 10 books on a topic, you know about as much as someone with an undergraduate degree. Most people can't remember what they learned in college. You take some decent notes, you review that information every now and then, you're good. And if you really get passionate about something, take a deeper dive, stay on it for a couple of years and... If you read a hundred books on something, you know as much as anyone on the planet about it, just about, as long as you can access the information. John, this has been utterly great. Dude, we need to spend more time together. I'm serious. Let's do do a bike trip. Well, how are you feeling? How's your energy right now? I mean, New York City's been through it. You're on the midst of a place where everybody's at each other's throats. You're you're in an industry where the great resignation is happening. Just how's your personal energy and how's, how's John Tyson, the chicken man, doing? Personally, I'm thriving. Are you? Like, awesome. Oh, yeah, man. I'm thriving. Yeah, man. I'm living at a pretty sacred pace. My pace is aggressive, but it is sacred. You know, Wesley's like, I, don't, I have an unhurried spirit, but I have a busy schedule. I'm doing great. Um, pastoring is very challenging. In New York City, very, very challenging. So um, I'm very grateful for our churches uh, and that our church has got some real health. People coming to Jesus, people getting in the community. I'm very grateful for how the church is doing. Uh, I'd say we're probably doing better than most coming out of COVID, primarily due to the strength of our prayer culture. God's been very kind. A lot of prayer happening in our church because of our team. Um, but yeah, man, I'm steady. I'm, I'm trying to put in another 25 years or so. For, you know, I'm 45 right now. I feel like I'm in a pretty good place. God willing, I want to do it in New York. I love New York. Feels I don't feel Australian. I don't feel American. I feel New York. That's what I feel. Mm. So we'll see what God does, man. I'm, uh, I'm not worried about myself. Um, my wife's not worried about me, which is the main thing. She's like, you know, keep your heart alive and keep going. So I'm grateful. A lot of it, I remember Keller saying something right at the start of the pandemic. He said, most of the people who who left New York left about 18 months after the crisis ended because they were living on adrenaline. They didn't steward their hearts during the pandemic or during the crisis. And I consciously said, I am going to increase my joy, slow my pace and steward my heart so that I try and peak recovery coming out of COVID and I don't need to recover from COVID. Now, we all need to recover from COVID, but I feel like I did a better job uh, because of that advice from Keller consciously. So I feel pretty good. These are my famous last words, by the way. Yeah, yeah, those are great words. All right, John, he's got a book, Don't Miss It, The Primal Path. He's got another one, The Intentional Father. In fact, any book you find John Tyson write, just buy it. Anytime he speaks, just listen to him. He's got a lot to offer. John, is there anything else that um, you, if someone wants to follow you or you want to point somebody to, just go ahead and throw us any advertisement you want. That's kind of what happened on the podcast. Yeah, you can. uh, I'm on John Tyson, J-O-N-T-Y-S-O-N, on Twitter and on Instagram. If you go to primalpath.co, primalpath.co, um, there's a sign up for a free newsletter there. And every week I send out like a, pre, a short but potent thought for dads or men. And um, hopefully, hopefully uh, that uh, I've, the feedback from it's been very, very strong. Hopefully it's like a bright moment in your week, inspires you, gives you some vision. So that the best way you could help me is sign up for that email, totally free. But that's where I'm sort of like putting most of my stuff out. Awesome. Well, hey, John said something today that I know hits you. It's called the aggressive life because you're supposed to do something different with your life than you were doing before you started listening today. So maybe 
It's being intentional with your son. Maybe it's being intentional with your own healing. Maybe it's repenting for being a weenie boy or weenie girl and being having a bad attitude when life is difficult. Maybe it's building a bridge with somebody. I don't know what it is, but I hope you've got something here today that's going to make you do something today. It's why it's called the aggressive life, not the interesting thoughts life. Thanks, John. Great being with you. I look forward to a longer friendship with you. We'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Cheers, mate. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com. Find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating, leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram, at Brian Tome. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.